The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Marion Moses. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the September 8th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, over the full hour, we get another installment from UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer, who offers his inestimable insights about the COVID-19 pandemic. Testing, vaccines, and excess deaths are in the mix. We'll be right back after a station break. the show. Returning again for the full hour is my guest, UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer. We're so fortunate to have him back with us today. With appointments in public health and sociology, Andrew's research interests include health and mortality, especially selective mortality and multi-cause interaction, the 1918 influenza pandemic, demography methods, mathematical sociology. Andrew Neumer completed his bachelor's in biology at Harvard, his master's of science in medical demography at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and his PhD in sociology at UC Berkeley. He's appeared on all media platforms in the US and beyond. His CV needs a full-time employee to update all those appearances. We'll talk first about general trends, then vaccines, then to excessive deaths attributable to COVID-19. And given the details continue to change, we're going to note throughout the interview that today we are recording this September 4th, 2020. Andrew comes to us today from his home up the hill from where I am. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Andrew Neumer. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to talk to KUCI listeners, as always. Well, it's been four months since you joined us. Do you remember that was four months, Andrew? Uh, it was, is it four months already? My, already. My <laughs> so first, we didn't get that much anticipated and hoped for lull in the summer, a couple of federal holidays and summer weather, and we could also call out some of the super spreader rallies 
So what do you have to say about that? Had you even imagined that the shape of the COVID cases plotted on the graph were the shape that we ended up with where we are right now? Well, it's, it's complicated as always with COVID. Yes. Um, always a, a curveball. And uh, I would say it's too early to say whether we got a summer lull because we don't know what the fall and winter are going to be like. So I, I would correct you the, there or, or just sort of change the, the premise of, of the question. I mean, talking about waves is something that we do in retrospect and the pandemic isn't over. So there's no time for retrospective yet. No, so, but I, I do want to, though, I, I, I have a different question that's a part of this section, is that I want to know if we're still, we're due for the second spike, such as was experienced during the pandemic of 1918. That second spike dwarfed the first spike. So the odd shape of this spike, I'm wanting to know, then we can ask, I can ask about the second spike, it's still going to dwarf even the odd shape of this kind of stretch that we're looking at now. Right, so the, the summer, I mean, California has sort of experienced its peak in, in July, um, and the, the, which, is, which was later, you know, frankly, than I was expecting for the first, yes. for the first peak. And, but, but I don't know if you can, you know, uh, I mean, it still may be a lull. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean we, we just don't know yet what, the, the fall and winter have in store for us. So, I mean, we're really gonna understand this better in retrospect. And, and the United States is having a regional aspect to this that, that I, I certainly didn't fully anticipate and that I think no one did really. In terms of how it's going from region to region, I mean, mm -hmm. that's not a, exactly, it's not moving like a storm cloud from place to place, but except as a metaphor. But, but I mean, it's a very apt metaphor because- yes. We had, you know, we're a very connected society and there's flights everywhere. And even, you know, throughout the pandemic, certainly there have been scores of flight cancellations each day relative to where we were before. But there, nonetheless, there are flights around the nation. Uh, Moving and, people around. And I, I was truly expecting a more in synchronous epidemic in the United States. We, we saw the Northeast in March and April. In the early spring, we throughout the summer, we saw the South and California had its close up in, in July. And now, you know, we're seeing the Midwest in the last few days. This is being taped on the, the 4th of September, September. Just, just before the Labor Day uh, weekend right. in, of 2020. And it's, it's, it's as if the thing moves around and can only affect so many places at a, at a single time. And, but that's not how the science works. I mean, there's no reason why California and New York couldn't have been um, stressed out at the same time. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether this patchwork pattern will continue or whether at some point in the winter we will have a simultaneous epidemic. But it's, it's interesting and just wait and see. But we are not done with this pandemic in terms of it's just it's not over. Now, no, and I didn't mean that, but to imply that the low meant that it was over. So I, I just want to add one mode of transportation besides the airplane moving around the, the cases of COVID, but we, simply as motorcycles in Sturgis, South Dakota. That's like one of the most intensely darkened blotches of COVID cases in the country right now. I mean, there's clearly cases associated with that rally. One of the surveys that they did showed actually that it, there weren't as many cases as some were 
okay. predicting. Uh, okay. So that's actually good news. But there was a death of a man in Minneapolis who had attended the yes, right the rally. So that so, was I about mean, half a week ago. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So I mean, I, I guess what I worry about more is the fact that you know that most of the participants of in that sort of famous motorcycle event actually don't live in in the town. So they they come there and then they go back home. And so I'm more worried about that as a super spreader event than I am about the right. the the cases in uh, in the town itself. Not because I I don't you know not because anyone's welfare is more important than anyone else's, but the cases in the town are actually not sort of that high in the grand scheme of things. And but we saw as as with the case of this person in Minneapolis who who died and hopefully there won't be many others. But yeah, but I mean, uh, coming from great distances to congregate and then to go back home after a, a long weekend or something is not what the doctor ordered for this pandemic. And we're speaking, you know, on the eve of the Labor Day weekend and uh, right. we're all sort of holding our breath about hopefully we won't be talking about similar stories four weeks from now. So also what has transpired since the four months ago you were on the show, Andrew, were the Memorial Day, the, all the, the protests staged around the country, lots of people gathering in rallies throughout the country after George Floyd was killed on Memorial Day weekend. That started the protest. So there has been much discussion about the quality of the spreading intensity between rallies in Tulsa, Sturgis, in Florida, beach weekends and all versus protest. Do you want to just give a sort of a definitive distinction in the outcomes of those large bandings together? Well, I don't know if I can give a definitive uh, uh, answer because there's still a lot that we don't know about all of those things. But the thing to keep in mind, and it's become clear that outdoor events are safer than indoor events. Which you've always been saying. All else being Every important. time. And I, and I have always been saying that, yeah. There's just a dilution effect of being outdoors of people's respiratory droplets. And now masking also helps indoors or out. And- It does help indoors? Yes. Yes. Okay. It does. It, it helps the spread of, I mean, just, just think if you, if you were to go to the clinic for- or the grocery store, right? Everybody's yeah. shopping. Well, exactly. Yeah, no, it helps. Masking helps. So, and sunlight helps if the sun is in the summer mode where it's, it's high in the sky and, and providing UV radiation, which helps uh, kill the denature of the virus. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, UV is like a, it's like a headwind for the virus. Or, so it's, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, if the sun is up, you can't get COVID. I'm just saying if you're out and about and you're six feet away from other people and you're bathing in the California summer sun, you're, you're safer than the same thing happening at night, say. So it's complicated. I mean, I mean, a lot of these events, you know, were outdoors and a lot of these events were with people masking. And a lot of these events were in the daytime during the summertime. Now, some of these events were indoors. Some of these events were without people masking. Some of these events were at night where you don't have the solar UV radiation. And we're heading into the winter months where in many parts of the country, the sun is up, but there's not really very much UV happening. So it's always changing. There was a political rally. Mr. Her- yes. And Mr. Herman Cain, erstwhile presidential candidate, you know, became sick and, and died. Um, Rapidly at a vault. Yeah. So, I mean, that transmission, you know, seems to be related to the rally. Now, that was an indoor rally. 
And, you know, so I just was saying that outdoors is better than indoors. And then there's a lot has been already said, and I'm sure that the KUCI listeners already know about how you know, not everyone in that situation was masking and so on. So, so that would be, you know, an example of some events over the summer where, where there was a spread. And then, you know, you asked about the protests. There, there were, I mean, there were a lot of them in June and some cases continuing all summer long. And lots of them during the daytime, like yeah, you're saying. Well, there were daytime well, and nighttime ones. There were daytime and nighttime ones, yeah. So there's no, there's absolutely zero UV at night. So, or at least from the sun. So that's a minus, you know, the fact that they're outdoors is a plus. Um, and the fact that, I mean, it's hard to know in terms of a scientific sample, how many protesters are masking. I mean, one sees news footage and, right. you know, some are, some, some aren't. I mean, I think that's, that's fair to say. I guess in, in my experience of watching the footage, many are, but it's, it's, it's really hard to quantify. So it's, it's hard to say how much transmission occurred at all these summer events. You, you mentioned the beaches. Now, I actually am not that worried about the beaches, and, and I've been pretty consistent on this for, right. for some time. I was, I was somewhat concerned in, in March when we were still sort of feeling our way around this. But I, I tweeted a, sort of a, a retraction tweet, if you will. Um, and my Twitter is at Andrew Neumer. So the KCI yes. listeners can follow my latest thoughts on, on there. But I, I, I tweeted a retraction tweet, so to speak, in April or, or, or maybe even March, saying the beaches actually were not that big a concern. And I mean, people are at the beaches. They're usually six feet apart from one another. It, actually, it's daytime. It's daytime. And when they're not six feet apart, they're typically with someone with whom they already share a household, you know? So if you're having dinner with someone every evening, you can be closer than six feet because you're already sort of exposed. So they show these beach shots where they use a long lens to sort of capture the whole, the whole beach. But if you, if you took the same picture from a drone and and looked at it from, from like a bird's eye view, you would see actually that the depth of field kind of squashes everyone together, but they're actually a lot further apart. So I, the beachgoers in Florida or th- that you mentioned or anywhere else, the beachgoers here in Orange County, you know, don't really keep me up at night. And, you know, of course, most of the time we're at the beaches during the daytime. So we've got that UV that I was talking about. So right. it's really hard to, to quantify exactly how much transmission is occurring in, in any given setting. Outdoor events uh, worry me less than indoor events. And we've seen as late summer has we're clinging to the last vestiges of summer here as we, we record this interview. But, you know, as late summer has turned into sort of unofficial early fall and college students are, are going back to campuses, we've seen one after the other of, of outbreaks on college campuses. Right. And those are hundreds to, of cases now. Yeah. Indoor, indoor events. Yep. Exactly. So as we go into the fall, indoors is more dangerous than out. And remember, as we go into the fall, we spend more time indoors than, than we do in the summertime. So... So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, public health. He's my guest for the full hour. We're recording on September 4th, reflecting what we know on this date. I guess I quickly want to mention before we go on to another topic is, I don't know if you viewed it in real time, but you've probably seen images from the Trump Republican National Convention acceptance speech on the South Lawn of the White House where there were around 1,500 people. That was a night event. They were seated rather, um, that was sort of the usual spacing of very, uh, the close spacing of chairs on the White House lawn. 
And only, I think, Secretary Azar of Health and Human Services, I think he's the only one that was masked in the cabin and precious few other ones. But those optics might have done a number on you. Uh, no, I'm a completely non- nonpartisan scientific expert. I don't, I don't talk about politics and I did not uh, watch uh, either of the uh, political party conventions. Okay. Well, it was an, it was an epidemiological uh, in a case of how they were situated there. All right. So let's talk on, let's move on to what's breaking currently about vaccines. Talk about where we are with the phase three of two clinical trials that your, what your peers and you are evaluating as the efficacy there is being reported about those vaccines being developed by Moderna and AstraZeneca. Yeah, let me, uh, I know KUCI listeners know this already, but let me remind them that, that what phase three means, because that implies that there were phase one and phase two, and, and there were. So phase one is a, is a safety trial. It's just to make sure that the candidate vaccine doesn't create some really adverse reactions. You know, like to humans. In humans, yes, it's in humans. It's, it's done in a group of healthy volunteers, and they receive the vaccine, and they're monitored for adverse reactions. You know, uh, you know, you want to make sure that that the vaccine molecule doesn't cause anaphylactic shock in twenty five percent of people, or something like that. So, so that's the phase one trial safety. Now, all phases look at safety. So, uh, just because phase one is safety doesn't mean we stop looking at safety as we progress. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but it's necessary for the vaccine to be safe before we can proceed to phase two trials. Phase two trials are immunogenicity trials. So for a vaccine to work, it has to generate an immune response. And so in phase two, we expand the group to have a larger sample size so that we can study things better. And we, mm-hmm. look, right. we look for immunogenicity. Now, we also look for immunogenicity in phase one, but the sample size is too small to draw firm conclusions. So in phase two, we're looking for immunogenicity. Does the vaccine generate an immune response? An immune response is necessary but not sufficient mm-hmm. for the vaccine to be protective. There are examples in past attempts to make vaccines where, in which the vaccine candidate generates a detectable immune response, but it doesn't turn out to be protective. Where the rubber meets the road, it doesn't actually work, but we can detect an immune response. On the other hand, if we fail to detect immune response, the vaccine is, is dead in the water. Right. Uh, So phase two means, does the vaccine generate an immune response? And of course, we continue to look for adverse events along the way, but we only begin a phase two trial after it has successfully passed the phase one trial. So phase two looks for, does the vaccine generate an immune response? So phase three then is efficacy. So having passed phase one safety, phase two immunogenicity, the phase three is, does it work? does this immune response, which we confirmed in phase two, actually mean that in the real world, when people who've received the vaccine have, you know, go out and do what they do, will it you know, protect them? And that is where we're at now. We are conducting phase three trials you know, as we speak. So it's a much larger sample size. Like to... Like thirty thousand sample Co- size. Yeah, per- correct. Okay, for each each one of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's thousands of people, and the important thing to understand is it's randomized, double blind, and placebo controlled. And I, I know that sounds like a, a mouthful, and probably also sounds 
you know, very esoteric, but I know KUCI listeners can. Uh, can well, uh, I think the broad uh, public is understanding this. I think yeah. there's a great amount of literacy. So they understand that this is all building a protection into what this vaccine is going to be offered because well, of the, the climate right now of launching any kind of vaccine is very charged with all kinds of advantage taking. So those protections are things that I think the public knows it has so much skin in this game to understand it and is willing to understand that. Well, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, so the placebo controlled nature is, is that half of the people in the trial receive just a placebo, just a sterile saline shot, and then they're compared to you know, the people who actually did receive the vaccine. Furthermore, it's randomized. So the group that receives the vaccine candidate and the group that received the placebo are chosen at random. So uh, there's no sort of steering of uh, healthy volunteers in, into the vaccine group, for example, which biases ag against finding an effect, even if the vaccine works. And the, there's also a blind nature. So the blindness is so that the, well. Well, the researchers the, don't know. Well, it's double blind. So right. it's, it's blind for a number of reasons, but to, to, sort of, to sort of boil it down. The reason to make the recipients blind is so that they don't, you know, among other things, exaggerate their actions to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to compensate. So if someone knows, you know, that they're in the placebo group, what's the point? I mean, they're going to, you know, take extra precautions like masking all, you know, all the time and not, you know, going out of the house only in scuba gear, you know, and the people in the vaccine group may take extra risks. So, it, you know, when the people know what group they're in, it compromises the whole study right. because, you know, it changes the reality uh, relative to how the vaccine will be used, you know, assuming it's approved. And then the reason to, to make it blind from the implementers is, is the steering effect. You don't want to steer certain people into the, to the vaccine or steer certain people into the placebo. And so it's double blind, it's randomized, and it's placebo controlled. And then at the end of the study, there's someone who has a master list. So, so each vial ha has a number and, and then someone is the gatekeeper of the master list. And the, this person has the database on, that shows which vial was actually a candidate vaccine and which vial was placebo. And then, and then they unblind the results. And then you can see, can compare the, the, the COVID zero conversion rate in each in each group, and then you can tell whether or not the vaccine works. And so this is what we're all you know waiting to hear with bated breath. Uh, with oh, uh, totally. And so, so are so, the and are the participants in these double blind studies? They are to go about their normal duties, about their normal way of living. There's they're not. That's the whole point of it well, too. That's right. They're all given the same instru instructions in, in terms of there's no difference in, in instructions. It's not biasing their exposure right. at all. Which, which would, which, I mean, which would inadvertently unblind the study if you gave, you know, the placebo and the vaccine group different instructions. So yeah, they're, they're told to go about their life. I mean, including mac masking and whatnot. And so, which is part of the reason why you need a large sample size because this is not a challenge study where we're giving people the virus after we've given them the vaccine. This is a study where people are just going out into the real world and living their life. So yeah, we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, these are promising candidates because they have uh, candidate vaccines, because they have passed the immunogenicity test, the phase two trial. But the thing that KUCI listeners need to understand is that there's not so, you know, so far a vaccine for every disease. 
Right. So there's no HIV vaccine. There's no hepatitis C vaccine. I mean, I could go on and on. And it's not for lack of trying. You know, some diseases are just tricky. And Oh, you point out too that the pandemic of 1918, there, that, there was never a vaccine for that either. Uh, well, that's true. Although, although in 19, that was over 100 years ago. And right, it was right. Hard, and it, that's... It, it, was, it was hard to invent a vaccine in, in real time, you know, back, back then because of biotechnology has, uh, has advanced so much since then. So, Andrew, are you concerned about any protocols being undermined by the race to push out a vaccine before the last vote by mail ballots are sealed November 3rd. So I don't think that we should vaccinate anyone outside of a trial until the phase three trials have been completed and the results have been analyzed. Now, the analysis of the results is, is not very time consuming, thankfully, because the study design gives you two groups and you compare the two groups. Yeah, okay. And so the polio vaccine trials of 1955, which involved 200,000 mm. people in each, in each arm of the study, those were time consuming to analyze somewhat because computers were rudimentary and we're talking about 400,000 paper records of kids who yeah. had gotten very that. analog at that time yeah but this study will not be time consuming to to it's analyze mm-hmm. because we have we have computers and so you know within a few days of the completion of the study we'll know the result so before releasing the vaccine we should wait and see what the result is because to vaccinate millions of people with a molecule that we don't know whether it works has enormous potential pitfalls so if you guess correctly and, uh, and the vaccine does work, then you, you do get a head start. But you have a tremendous potential also to, to compromise the integrity of the study itself if some people go get vaccinated who are actually in the study. And you have, you have enormous potential for harm if it turns out the vaccine doesn't work. And it's an extension of the right to try concept to mm-hmm. vaccines. Now, the right to try concept is in which people who have end stage disease, you know, fatal diseases, very often cancer, are- Or, are, Andrew, I'm gonna say also, so, because people are thinking because the social media is broadcasting all these anecdotal cases. Or it could be a, like a, an early childhood onset of some really debilitating syndrome. Right. So all of those things are happening. Everybody knows somebody who's been on that. And it's like this hallmark social media case study. And people think, well, we've all got to, we've got to jump on it whenever it's available. The right to try. Well, the re- so right to try, I mean, the right to try is controversial, first of all. But yes. uh, sec- second of all, I mean, it's, it's the idea that people can use experimental medicines, particularly when you know, before they've been fully approved, because it, it's sort of a Hail Mary, so to speak, is someone is, is potentially, um, you know, staring down death from, a, I mean, let's just say cancer. I mean, it, it, you're correct that it's not just cancer, but let's just say someone has terminal cancer and they've tried, you know, the standard chemotherapy for their type of cancer and it hasn't worked. And they can try, you know, some, some other disease as a, sort of on an experimental basis, but not in, the con- not in the context of a clinical trial, just sort of doing it. And I mean, that in and of itself is controversial, but extending 
that concept to a vaccine is, is highly, highly controversial. And to do it in the middle of an epidemic when everyone is going to want to be vaccinated is really opening up the, the door to lots of potential pitfalls. And, you know, I, I certainly intend to, uh, to wait myself to get vaccinated until the, the phase three trials are complete and we have a verdict on the vaccine. And, and I would encourage, you know, the, your KCI listeners to do the same. Wait for the phase three trials to end. And when a vaccine has been proven safe and effective, then we can, uh, you know, get vaccinated. I mean, I, I think the first doses will probably be reserved for healthcare workers and, and people in, in at-risk groups. But I mean, regardless of that, just let's wait for the vaccine to be proven. It's not just that we'll know for sure that it's efficacious, but we'll have a much better sense of the safety because, you know, they continue to look for adverse events. And uh, Exactly. Which could be, it's anything from a very minor kind of <laughs> bruise around the injection site, I learned, at, at, all the way to some to, well, to death. Everything under the sun is looked for in terms of adverse events. So um, almost every vaccine package insert that you, you read, and these can be downloaded. You don't have to actually have the physical, you know, pamphlet. Um, oh, okay. For, for, uh, for adverse events, they almost always list soreness at the injection site or, or pain. So, I mean, you know, which is sort of normal. normal. You get, a, you get a shot in the arm and, it, and you have like a, a small... A small bruise there or just a little soreness there and um, you know that's just sort of like what you expect from a shot but that is all it is tabulated as an adverse reaction so mm-hmm. everything I mean everything under under the sun you know that that those uh, those go away you know but it's still counted as an adverse event and obviously you know more severe adverse events are are counted in febrile seizures which which is um, something that uh, Kids sometimes get after the, getting the MMR uh, V vaccine, the the quadrivalent uh, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, um, varicella vaccine. Those are very concerning to parents while they happen, but they those actually disappear, and then there don't seem to be um, no lingering effects. And, and from yeah, that no inst- lingering effects. But but those are those are uh, observed very very closely. And so I'm certainly interested to see what the tabulations will be of adverse reactions like, you know, I have, uh, for, for the candidate vaccines for coronavirus. For those of you who've just joined us, I'd like to reintroduce my guest, Andrew Neumers. Come back to the show, Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. He's UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. He's here for the full hour. So I, I ask about compromises to the protocol because we are getting so many other protocols upended. I'll mention it's a little bit out of order, but I want to bring it together here, is how the Center for Disease Control has now required hospitals. We'll talk about excessive deaths and that later, but to bring out the reporting required hospitals since mid-July, the deaths to teletracking a private for-profit contractor as opposed to the Center for Disease Control, the flow of that data from hospitals to Center for Disease Control. So that's why there is so much concern and there's some reversals of other protocols about testing. I hope we get into that too here today while we're together. So there's been undermining now and we know that other norms have been broken in other parts 
of government in the last three and a half years. So it's a real, I think, a real concern that something is, there's a hazard here looming in this very high stakes outcome of vaccine being pushed out. Well, uh, just to uh, follow up on one aspect of your, of your question, I, I wouldn't describe the, the emergency use authorization of the vaccine, if, if, if indeed that comes to pass, as a corruption of the protocol or, or anything to do with the vaccine trial protocol. It's sort of a, a separate channel of distribution. Uh, I mean, the, the vaccine trials will still, I mean, although I did mention that it has the potential to corrupt the vaccine trial, my biggest fear is just that it's not a wise thing to do to release the vaccine before it's ready. And it's not really a corruption of the protocol, it's just a, a separate channel and an unwise one in my opinion. But to, uh, to get to your second question about the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I mean, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is not run with a lot of transparency in the best of times. And uh, people who work for the CDC cannot speak to the press, for example. And this has nothing to do with the coronavirus. This, this is like a longstanding policy at that agency. And I mean, I mean, sort of, so they can speak to the press through um, you the know, researchers. Through, through the, the researchers. They can I could speak talk to, the to press. you and you could talk to the press. No, well, no, I'm. I, I, That's not the way it works. I, I, so I mean, they can, that... they can speak to the press through the CDC press office only. Oh, that's what you mean. Okay. Um, and uh, so in the best of times, the CDC is not run with a lot of transparency and, you know, has nothing to do with the coronavirus. As I said, it's just the way they operate. And, uh, but historically, the CDC has been an extremely, you know, well-respected international, uh, well, it's a domestic public health agency, but it's well-respected public health agency in international circles and, and respected nationally too, of, of course. But they've made decisions during this pandemic, which haven't all, you know, which I think ha have reflected this lack of transparency, but, but now which many people are calling into question. So, I mean, most recently, their suggestion that people who are asymptomatic don't need yes. to be tested. Now, there are some situations in which at the margins, some overtesting may be going on and that people may be getting tested simply for the sake of being tested or, or, or what have you, or, or to fulfill some bureaucratic notion when they haven't really been exposed and they're not showing any symptoms. And, and that may be overtesting, but there are many, many situations in which testing an asymptomatic person is entirely scientifically appropriate. I mean, for example, if okay. someone was exposed to a known case, testing is entirely appropriate. And testing is the cornerstone of how we're gonna curb this because people need to know their status so they can know to isolate and quarantine. And- uh, Especially as institutions open up, like schools. Exactly, we'll, we'll, exactly. We'll break that down. We'll talk about that so, specifically. So, I mean, so I don't understand, you know, I don't understand, uh, you know, so the CDC uh, has not, you know, this has not been uh, a good um, nine months for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, it's, it's, really, it's really sad for me as a public health um, mm. researcher to, to see you know, how they've given contradictory advice or, or backtracked on their own advice and not been transparent with, you know, why decisions are being made. And, uh, you know, I don't have all the P's and Q's on, uh, on data being 
directed through channels that exclude them. But I know a lot has been written about that in, in the press. And um, I'm not really an expert on healthcare data in the sense that of those types of, of data, which were sort of at the, at the center of that imbroglio. But although obviously I, I health analyzing health data is, right. is my stock and trade. But, but I, you know, I mean, the CDC, I mean, more information is always better than less information. And so I, you know, I, I do, you know, wonder why health and human services have taken their sort of their best people off the, uh, the best people, meaning the CDC, off the case in, in some instances. And so, I mean, I, th- I think the, you know, certainly the executive branch of the U.S. government has not handled this uh, ep- pandemic very well, uh, to, in, you know, in my opinion, and, and a, but a lot of people, I think, in, in the health space uh, would agree with that. Absolutely. Whether, yeah, I, that is just to, to say a lot in that. Um, so I wanted to get back to the vaccine. When we talked about this four months ago, you were less concerned about the distribution. And because the discussion at that point four months ago was who's going to get priority. And that wasn't your concern. But if this nation is experiencing such a bungled supply chain for distributing the personal protective equipment supplies, how do you expect the distribution of a vaccine that requires like a certain amount of refrigeration of the dose? How is that, how, how can an unprepared nation pull this off in effectively and quickly? Well, so I, I don't remember precisely what I, I told you four months ago about the distribution, but it was it may have been something like, oh, let's lose sleep over the distribution when we have a safe and effective I think that's uh, about, yeah. v- vaccine, which it's, some, well, yeah, I, it, uh, and I'm glad that's your recollection as well, because that sounds like something I would have told the KUCI listeners at the time. And I, and I still basically feel that way, you know, that, that I'm going to lose sleep over distribution when we have a vaccine, but... And, and we still don't have a vaccine. And uh, so that's important to, to remember. I mean, I, I have heard some people saying that, you know, we have to make sure we have enough sterile syringes and, and enough um, sterile needles. All of it. For, you know, for 350 million doses of this vaccine. And that's, that's only in the United States. Right, they're gonna go. Uh, now, there's, there's a few caveats there. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, the, the logistics that at the level of manufacturing, you know, sterile polypropylene syringes or whatever is not my, you know, uh, stock in trade. So it's certainly something I'm, I'm monitoring and I can probably tell you more about it uh, the next time I, I talk to KCI through, through Ask a Leader because uh, I think, you know, looking at my crystal ball, this won't be the, the last time I'm on okay, your show you. because, because uh, this pandemic is not going to go away. But the... The thing we have to understand is, is, is that there won't be 300 million doses available like overnight. The vaccine will be manufactured in batches and it will be available in dose, you know, in a, a few million doses at a time. Okay. And, I, and, I think, and I think vulnerable groups and, and healthcare workers, clinical healthcare workers will, you know, be the first to be prioritized. At least, at least that would be my hope. And I think that's a rational approach. And so uh, I think they'll probably make a virtue of necessity and just sort of 
be able to manage the logistics because they won't need 300 million sterile syringes. They'll need at first 10 million and they'll manage to get 10 million and then they'll need another 10 million and they'll manage to get it. And I, you know, one, one way or another, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I don't know, call me an optimist, but I, I think we'll, we'll figure that out. And, you know, I mean, once they have a proven vaccine, they will make enough doses for everyone. It's not obvious to me, for, uh, by the way, that children need to be vaccinated for, oh. against this. Okay. So we won't because. necessarily need uh, one shot for every person. Well, because kids, kids don't, don't get. Uh, because they're sick. more asymptomatic than the, uh, than yeah. the adult so, population. It's, so they're still spreading. Well, they're, they're spreading, and, but they're also getting a potentially lifelong immunity that's also potentially stronger than the immunity that the vaccine can confer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So kids may be better off not getting the vaccine. And you, you might say, well, kids will get it then. And that's precisely the point. They'll get it, but they won't show symptoms or they'll have sniffles. And then they'll, they'll be left with a, an immunity that's, I mean, as we understand it now, they'll be left with an immunity that's even stronger than the vaccine. So they'll be better off and they're not at risk of, you know, but, of serious complications. Now, but some of them are, yeah, they're not equally. Well, some of them can per- spread and, and, and spread you know. or the ones like, what was it? The Kawasaki sort of like uh, well, syndrome. I mean, we don't know which ones those are. I mean, the Kawasaki like syndrome really hasn't emerged as a, as a major complication. It's not even clear that that's cause and effect. So, I mean, the case for vaccinating kids would be that, you know, kids can spread it to adults. And so, but my read of the situation is that we should vaccinate adults first because adults get um, sick. And by the time we've vaccinated all the adults, we can talk about vaccinating children and we'll see what the state of the epidemic is at that point. But it's not axiomatic that kids need to be vaccinated. I mean, in, in the end, there's we may- a shortage, yeah. Well, just, or even if there's not a shortage. Okay, okay. You know, in the end, we'll see. But I'm not saying, you know, when, when we look back on this pandemic five years from now, we, you know, we won't be in a situation where we, where we didn't vaccinate kids, but it's just, it's not axiomatic that kids will be vaccinated. So we're, we're talking about testing and you were very adamant about some recent coverage, it was this week, where the PCR test, that is where the person has COVID, the, the disease is, they're having symptoms, it's not post COVID, it's during the COVID case, that you were, you reacted quite specifically to how the calibration of how sensitive the test was, how can you help listeners get through that discussion that's clouding people's understanding of whether or not they need to be tested and whether there's an overreaction of the positivity and whether a person is contagious. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, talk all of a sudden about the sensitivity of the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test. The, the chain reaction in the, in the abbreviation of PCR gives some insight into yes. why it's so sensitive. It goes through cycles of amplifying small segments of nucleic acid. So it amplifies and amplifies and amplifies in a chain reaction. And then if the nucleic acid, if the viral RNA, the viral genetic code is present in the sample, then it's amplified to the point where it can be detected easily. 
and and you and can just keep. You're contagious. Well, no. See, that's the, that's the point. That's is, okay. Is that you're you're amplifying like like crazy. So you're amplifying the smallest quantities of virus until it can be detected easily. So the point is that the PCR test is actually not very good at this, except in in certain quantitative incarnations of it. Okay. It's not very good at distinguishing between high and low levels of virus in the individual from whom the sample was collected. The strategy of PCR in its, in its most basic form is that it amplifies like crazy everything in the sample until they can be detected easily and then it gives you a yes, no result. And the point is that uh, people who have recovered will test positive unless their recovery is, is absolutely utterly complete. So someone 28 days out mm-hmm. from infection may still have some remnant viral nucleic acid in their sample, which is then going to be PCR positive. And they may in fact be totally non-contagious. And so there's concern in some circles, some circles more than others, that the uh, PCR test is, is too sensitive right. and is, is, is basically telling people to stay out of the community for longer than they need to be. So the idea is to use a, a deliberately less sensitive test. Like a, a, the idea is to, to use deliberately a, a, a less, less accurate, well, a less good test. Right. But, but one that is only capable of detecting large amounts of virus. Because when someone is shedding large amounts of virus, that's when they're contagious to others. So is the sewage testing, is that a new developed test? Is that a, a reliable test? to uh, look throughout communities? Uh, I'm, skeptical. Sort of- I'm skeptical that the sewage testing is, is a very much practical utility. There is a correlation between viral genetic code uh, that's uh, found in the sewage and you know, the presence of uh, an epidemic in the community that generated that sewage. And according to reports, this has even been used at the University of Arizona to find outbreaks in some you know, residential housing for the students. But right. I mean, I, th- I think, you know, where the, where the rubber meets the road, I don't think we're going to sewage test our way out of this pandemic. There are, there are much more efficient ways to generate information on who has COVID-19 uh, or, and, and where COVID-19 hotspots are than by analyzing uh, sewage. So, I mean, it's, it's a sort of neat demonstration of the textbook concept that the viral RNA is spread by sewage. But uh, I mean, the KUCI listeners need to understand above all else that, that sewage is not contagious in the typical sense. I mean, it, the, the viral RNA is there, but people aren't catching live virus because it's making its way into the environment. Well, that's su- an important sewage. clarification. That, that's that been confused in the relay there because I yeah. think was it the Yosemite uh, sewage there, there was considered a some kind of contagious factor. So that's a really useful thing to understand and yeah. it includes what people do indoors then. So let's talk though about maybe that are what are more promising. There's really new testing products that have just been pushed out this week. Again, folks, we're recording September 4th, 2020. And so I would like to know whether you're persuaded that these new products, I don't have the name, Abbott may be one of the manufacturers, but these were going to be more simple to administer, the results were gonna come out faster, and this might be a way of helping manage opening up schools. Potentially, yes. I mean, this has a lot of 
promise and, and, and a little bit of peril. This is these less sensitive, but also easier to administer and less expensive uh, okay. tests uh, to which I referred in, in the answer to one of the, the previous questions. So the idea is that there are these strips, you know, they're a bit like a, a home pregnancy test, right. if, That's if you want to think about it that way. Right. Uh, and they would cost five to eight dollars or you know or sort of in that ballpark to, per test so so your employer may insist that every Monday morning before you come to work that you administer one of these tests and um, the, every household in America you know potentially could be could be given um, you know a, 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 a test strips and the idea is that we don 't need PCR PCR is detecting people who are 28 or even 35 days past the day of infection and have gone through their infectious period. And so you're still testing PCR positive too, you know, too late in the game. And, you know, the thing is like, you know, there are all sorts of sort of pregnant questions there about, uh, you know, well, no pun intended, but uh, about, about like, well, you know, if you can detect someone at 28 days, why didn't you detect them at 10 days when the time was right? And all sorts of things like that. But the fact of the matter is if, if someone finds out for the first time that, that they're infected when they're 35 days out and they're actually no longer contagious, well, it's good for them to know that they were infected, but it's, it's not necessarily the right thing to tell them that they need to quarantine for 14 days. Cause then you're talking about quarantining them, you know, to 50 for days months. or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's not, right. it's not helping anybody because they're, they're actually past the right. inf infectivity phase, you know, for better or for worse. And so these test trips will tell you, am I detecting, you know, high amounts of shedded virus now? And, they'll actually test negative in the situation where you're no longer contagious. And, and that's basically where the rubber meets the road, what, what everyone wants to know. Now, the, this is not without its problems either. I mean, I mean, giving every household in America a test kit means that you're going to generate lots of false positives. You know, as a percentage-wise, maybe not so many, but in, in absolute numbers, you're going to generate lots of false positives, and we need to be prepared for the consequences of that. Um, mm -hmm. and also you'll generate some false negatives as well, but, uh, you know, right. uh, ask. and there's this sort of creeping health surveillance system that bioethicists have been talking about for quite some time and well before the pandemic. And I think it's something that we should all be talking about. I'm not saying I disapprove of test strips, but, you know, we're going to get to the point where an employer some employers, you know, are going to want to know your test strips results every once a week or once a day. And, uh, and you know, capitalism uh, already knows a lot about us through the Fitbits and, uh, and other fitness monitors that we all wear, and they collect all sorts of data on us. And, you know, people have raised concer privacy concerns about that for a long time. And, you know, will it become the new normal that we have to... Um, do test strips every week before we report for work. Long after the coronavirus pandemic has faded, are we, are we going to be doing influenza tests every, during the flu season every week? And, uh, you know, not, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but there's this sort of creeping uh, surveillance in the, in the name of health that I think, we, you know, we, even if we proceed with it, uh, we should proceed with it with open eyes and proceed with it, you know, under, understanding that, that there are, privacy issues lurking. And I'm not against the widespread distribution of these coronavirus test strips because it will help us put an end to the worst pandemic of, of the 21st century so far. But I would, I would say, and, and you know, maybe there are some bioethicists on campus that you can 
get as a, a feature guest on, on your KCI show, but you, you know, there are, there are issues. Uh, there are, and, and not to, uh, I don't want to dwell on it, but just to make a fleeting reference to the case study of South Korea, where that population was willing to be surveilled in the, the first surge that they experienced, but it's, it's game over, they're done. They're, they're not interested in that surveilling anymore. And they can see where there may be opportunities taken to, to squelch dissent you know, of the administration. So there, that's a realization of the, the downside of surveilling during a pandemic. I mean, the KUCI listeners need to understand that the, the level of surveillance of the Korean population at its peak during this pandemic was Huge, profound, and yes. you know, there's a Americans have a very independent streak, and it's something that I think a lot of Americans would chafe against. The levels of surveillance that happened in South Korea earlier this year are, are, are levels of surveillance that I think a lot of Americans would would chafe against. And, and I'm not just speaking about self-described libertarians or self-described privacy freaks or whatever. I'm I'm talking about a lot of ordinary people would think twice about about that. And, uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I would yeah. never even put a Fitbit on because I, I know there's data I don't even know I've signed on to turn over. I, I won't go there. So I'm a, I'll make myself an example of that, that demographic. Th- there you go. And um, Gina Neff at Oxford uh, is a sociologist who studies the sort of data privacy issues. And she's written a book about the data collected by fitness trackers, you know, fitness watches and and all that, and and there there are legitimate issues. I think that sometimes people don't don't reflect on as much as as maybe they they might. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to see the pandemic be used as a rationale for huge data mining. Exactly, sweep yeah. a sweep of it. Yeah. So so stay tuned to KUCI FM for all the latest information from your interviews on 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 COVID. I guess, and we'll, we'll I look forward to speaking to your listeners again in the future. We'll do it between now and I don't know how many, less than four months from now, but you'll be in, continue to be in demand. So thank you so much, Andrew, for your time today and your heady research that gives uncanny insight into this world disaster. My pleasure. Thanks. My guest was Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. And he can be followed on Twitter. He gave his handle earlier. It's at Andrew Neumer, N-O-Y-M-E-R. And there will be a continuation of this interview on my website, askaleader.com. Stay tuned. Well, that was my wrap from... Next week, all the way to November 3rd, Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor is all about covering the election, baby. We'll be spending a lot of time down ballot and lots of reminders for early voting. Next week, we'll start with Irvine Ranch Water District Board candidate and water quality scientist, Dr. Karen McLaughlin. I'm planning on a spokesperson from a good government group to cover the ballot propositions as well on the show. Send me your questions as I announce each week who the upcoming guests will be on this show. My email is again c-s-h-a-m-b-a-u-g-h at k-u-c-i.org c-shambaugh at k-u-c-i.org or send me a tweet at c-l-s-h-a-m-b-a-u-g-h Check in with me as soon as it occurs to you. It would be good to have your thinking 
as we pry into these candidates' policy portfolios. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Again, confirm your voter registration. Have your friends do the same. Make sure all those friends get counted in the census. And keep sporting your lovely mask, including over your nose. Everybody get ready.